Shabbat Shalom. Good to be back. Let's turn to Romeo, Romans, and we are in chapter 8. This is, in fact, our third installment of chapter 8. Will I ever get through it? Will I ever get through it? But before we get into Romans chapter 8, I want to read to you from Corinthia Olive, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of Elohim, the mystery, the hidden wisdom, which Elohim ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the master of glory. So the principalities, the rulers of this dark age, if they had known the plans of Yahuwah, they would not have crucified the master of glory. This tells us exactly what Paul is talking about as we go into the eighth chapter and we look at how it finishes in the 37th verse. Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded... In neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of Elohim, which is in Messiah Yahusha, our Master. We have to be aware of the waging war that is not of the flesh, of the carnal realm, don't we? We have to be aware of the Luciferic forces that influence the nations. Remember Genesis chapter 11? Yahweh disinherited the nations. And he put the nations under the governance of the gods of this world. And that's what we see today. And maybe it's time for some of you, I don't know, maybe some of you are disappointed like I am, and it's time for us to get off the Trump um, gravy train, I don't know. But when I see what's happening in Syria, I see what's going on with the globalists that are influenced by the Luciferic, satanic realm. If you don't believe me, just look into the architecture of Washington, D.C., the power player that is actually being brokered now. And you start to see things the way that they should be. Because I believe right now what we're seeing is this last-ditch effort by these very principalities that are influencing the nations, that are influencing the leaders and the governmental rulers. I believe it is their last play to try and do a scorched-earth policy to try and ruin and destroy the creation. Why? Why? Why on earth would they do this? Are they even aware that they are being influenced by the very principalities from Genesis 11 that you see all the way through Scripture and that we see that we have to be aware of because these Luciferic forces have been unleashed 
across the nations. And I believe what we saw this week with the Tomahawk missiles being aimed at Syria, this could thrust us into the very, very scorched earth policy that the Luciferic realm is trying to do. Because as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, if they had known then they wouldn't even have tried to crucify the Son of Glory if they had knew the Master's plan. And we understand that if we now know the full revelation, that don't you think the satanic luciferic forces are trying to thwart the very plans of the Creator Himself. They are trying to thwart the very plans of the Creator Himself. And the Creator's plan is what? That His Son, Revelation chapter 5, would be coming back when all hope is lost, when John is crying his eyes out and he looks and he says, but there's no Nobody worthy. Nobody is worthy to what? Redeem the creation. Redeem the land. Nobody is worthy to unleash the seven seals because they don't have the land redemption title. If the satanic forces can destroy a scorched earth policy and ruin the creation. Their hopes is that there'll be nothing for the Messiah to come back and redeem. It's a scorched earth policy. They are trying in their twisted, sick mind to thwart the Messiah's land redemption that is laid out in the scripture. So we're going to be looking into that today because it is very, very important that we understand that what? That we have a hope that even in the midst of the darkness that Yahweh has a plan not only to redeem you and I but in fact to redeem the creation. That is why they are I believe, in this last-ditch effort to try and destroy it all in the hopes that he won't return to a thought what? Just as they would have tried to thought the crucifixion, they're now in this place of desperation trying to thought the return of the Messiah so that they can set up their own Luciferic government. Let's begin in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, for our third installment of Romans chapter 8. For I reckon that the sufferings, brethren, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory about to be revealed to us. I am excited about the burning passion of the Ruach HaKodesh that is alive in his word. That when I get depressed and feel oppressed by the the news and the things happening in the world, and when people have no hope, I look and I see hope because I look and I get my news from somewhere else. It's the good news. And it is alive. It's not going to turn into a fish wrapper. It is alive. For the earnest looking out of the creation doth expect the revelation of the Benai Yahuwah, the sons of Yahuwah. Did you catch that? The creation has an expectation of revelation that the sons of Yahuwah are going to come forth. The creation itself is in expectation of revelation and redemption. 
The reason, and most people miss this, the reason that Yahushua went through all the troubles and trials and tribulations that he did was so that he would specifically fulfill every legal requirement, not only to redeem you and me, but he had another purpose also, and that was to redeem the creation. So, When you understand why Yahushua, and we'll get into this, and I've touched on it before, you'll understand why Yahushua was crowned with a crown of thorns. Specifically for the very purpose that we're going to talk about today. Let's look at that, because you'll find out as we go through the New Testament, from the Torah into the Prophets, and thread it all the way through, that red thread from the Torah into the prophets, into the New Testament, and we all cinch it up at the resurrection. We were going to find the exact reason why Yahushua went through what he did so that you and I, when they start doing this scorched earth policy and everybody is losing their hope, that we will understand what is about to happen to the sons of Elohim and that we'll have the hope and be able to speak forth the message because I truly believe they are trying to thwart the return of the Messiah and we are going to now have eyes to see that we won't get sucked down the rabbit hole with everybody else, with everybody else. So the reason that Yahushua was crowned with thorns and that he actually bled by those very thorns was to secure not your and my redemption, but to secure the creation's redemption. Now, where did thorn branches first appear? Where? Where? They first appeared, there was no thorns, until the fall in the Garden of Eden. Now, understand, there were three parts to the Garden of Eden. There was the midst, there was the garden itself, and then there was the land. And that corresponds to... The first, second, and third parts of the garden correspond to the midst, like unto the holy of holies, the garden, like unto the holy place, and the land, the Mount of Olives. So we have to understand that in rabbinic literature, that's very clear. that The Garden of Eden... The three parts correspond to the temple. And where was man taken from? The dust of the holy of holies. That's where man came from. From the midst of the ground, he was taken out of the dust. So where will man's redemption occur? In the holy of holies. And who is the only one that is allowed to go into the holy of holies? The priests. Only the high priest, and we know it is by the order of Zedek that he can redeem mankind. So we see this pattern that is going to be played out throughout the whole of the Bible. But we've got to go back to basics so we can understand where we're at today. So be patient with me. Thorn branches, 
Very interesting, those of you that have been to En Gedi, if you go up to En Gedi in Israel and you want to take some shade because it's quite hot, you'll get your shade there from the acacia tree. The acacia tree is where you've got like the two to three inch thorns, if any of you have been to Israel. And in fact, that acacia tree is where they would have used those acacia thorns to weave the crown of thorns. But also, the acacia tree is used in basket weaving. And that's where, in the um, Hebrew custom of basket weaving, throughout that area would have come also from the acacia tree. And I'm not just talking about this just to make conversation with you, but to lead you actually more into the scriptures. So, in fact, if we look at thorn branches throughout the scripture, you're going to see what? What happened? Abraham goes up and he takes his son and he's about to slay his son. And then what? There's a ram and it's caught round the head with thorns. So the ram then right here, we see a prophetic picture of a ram that is used as a substitute and it's crowned in thorns. It would have been the acacia thorn tree. And then later on, what we see is that we see in Egypt, the baker has bread in an acacia thorn basket upon his head and he is hung from a tree. Are you seeing something that Yahweh is now going to start to communicate to us through the scripture? Now, sometime later on, we have Absalom riding, I'm sure, as fast as anything, and he gets his head encircled in thorns and he hung from a tree. But then later on, just in case you're not seeing the picture in scripture, we've got messianic Jonah. Jonah, who is a picture of Messiah for three days and three nights. And what happens with Jonah? It says that he is crowned and his head is crowned in what? He's crowned in weeds and thistles. This is all now that Yahweh lays out for us in the scripture, and we haven't even got to the Messiah yet. Somebody's chirping. We haven't even got to the Messiah yet. So we have Absalom. We've got the thorn branches around the ram with Abraham. We've got the branches, the acacia basket, the thorn branches with the baker that was hung in Pharaoh's prison. And then we have, of course, Absalom and then messianic Jonah with weeds and thistles wrapped around his head. All of this, Yahweh is pointing to us that there is going to come a time when redemption comes by a crown of thorns. Why? Because it's about land redemption and it's about our redemption. And that's how our text begins in Romans chapter 8, verse 18 and 19. In fact, just like the three places of the Garden of Eden, the midst the garden and the land, how many times did Yahushua bleed? Three times Yahushua bled. Yahushua bled at the garden of Gethsemane. 
Luke chapter 24, verse 44. The Garden of Gethsemane is the land, the third part of Eden, outside of the gates. The second time Yahushua bled was at the scourging by the Roman soldiers. Yochanan, John chapter 19, verse 1. And the third time that Yahushua bled was the crowning of the head with thorns. Three times he bled. So why the shedding of Yahusha's blood, um, blood, excuse me, by the crown of thorns? Why would that be included in the text? Why is that it's so important that it's recorded in the text? Now, look at the words blood, ground, and thorns as we read these texts. Blood, ground, and thorns. Luke chapter 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he made prayer more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood as he fell down to the ground. John 19, 1. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Thorns. Genesis chapter 3 verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow you shall eat from it all the days of your life and thorns and thistles shall it bring out for you. So there, where? There is the thorns and thistles birth. It is a result of what? The rebellion and the curse. The ground has been given what? A curse. And immediately after the curse, what springs forth? Thorns and thistles are a result of the curse. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Yahuwah himself pronounced this curse. Now, in Yahushua, wearing the crown of thorns, he does what? He bears the curse. Not only for man, but he bears the curse for creation. Creation is cursed. Why do you think we live in a world where the satanic counterfeit is what we're seeing in Syria now, this scorched earth policy? But we've got Al Gore and all this environmentalism and all this liberal. Do you really, really think they give a rip about the earth? As As you're driving along in your Toyota Prius, I'm driving along in my diesel truck, preserving the environment, they're flying around in their Lear jets, burning aviation fluid fluid and fuel like nobody's business. It is hypocrisy to the max as they live in these posh palatial mansions all over the place. It is hypocrisy. They don't care about the redemption. They care about what? Thwarting the return of the King of Glory. So as we now go forward, we are going to see the unraveling majesty of Yahuwah through his word. Because this is why Yahuwah allowed his son to be crowned with thorns. Because Yahushua purchased by his blood creation's redemption. 
Isaiah 55, verse 12, it is written, All break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come with the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come forth the myrtle tree, and it shall be to Yahweh for a name and for an everlasting sign that you shall not be cut off. So our redemption is not only connected to us personally, but it's connected to the land, and it is a sign that we will not be cut off. Do not be disheartened. So what is the satanic counterfeit going to try and do? Try and get you to think you're cut off, you're disheartened, that there is no hope, that we're heading into World War Three, and it's a scorched earth policy because they're trying to thwart the return of the Son of Glory because in Revelation 5, he is going to clearly say, the land, the people, they're mine. And they will do anything they can to prevent that. They will do anything they can. It's already been told to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, how these principalities work, how these principalities in their sick and twisted thinking think that they can have glory and thought the plans of Yahuwah. They really believe that they can. But we know different. We know different. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof. It is written in the Psalm 24. The earth is Yahweh's through his creation and it is legally, it is legally his through the redemption. We have to understand that. Now, the sacrifice of Yahushua was crowned by thorns and will call us back. He will call us back to him by that very same ram's horn at the Feast of Trumpets. And it shall be at the last trump that the dead in Messiah shall rise. And we know the prophecy, don't we? It's going to be by that very same ram's horn that the elect are called to glory. You see, a substitute for the seed of Abraham redeems back the whole of creation, the land and the man, kind. Romans chapter 8, verse 21. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of Elohim. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Kepha Olive, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It is written... Who is his own self carried our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sin, should be alive to righteousness by whose stripes we were healed? And people go back, yes, when Yahushua was scourged, we were healed by those stripes. But he also incurred stripes upon his brow, did he not? Of course he did, because you were a sheep going astray, but now you have made repentance to the shepherd, the guardians of your beings. So Paul understands here in Romans, he understands about redemption, and he understands that redemption is not restricted to humanity, but it extends to what? All of creation. Redemption is not restricted to you and I, but it extends to the creation. 
So let's look at redemption. And let's go to the Torah. Leviticus, Vaikra, Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 10. What does the Jubilee, the Yovel, land redemption cause you and I to do? What does, the, what does it cause the people to do? It causes the people to do two things. Two things. And ye have hallowed the year, Leviticus chapter 25 verse 10. And ye have hallowed the year, the 50th year, and ye have proclaimed liberty. Has he proclaimed liberty to the captives? Has he? He has proclaimed liberty to the captives. He has proclaimed liberty in the land to all its inhabitants, a jubilee, a yovel it is to you. And ye have turned back each unto his possession, yea, each unto his family ye do turn back. The land redemption, the jubilee, the yovel calls you to do two things to go back to your possession and to go back to your family. What is it that you and I possess? What is our possession from the very beginning? To walk in the midst of the garden with Yahweh. That's our possession and we squandered it. And our second is to return to our Family And who is your family? Who is your mother? Who is your brother? But you are of the house, the family, the flock of Jacob, who is Israel. And he'll tell us more about this in Romans chapter 11, in case you're wondering. Redemption causes you to return to your possession, Eden, and return to your family, Jacob, Israel. This is the legal theme of land redemption by near of kin. It's from the Torah, and that's where we get the root instruction of land redemption. In the prophets, we can see the prophecy of land redemption, and ultimately, in the New Testament, you'll see how Yeshua, as our kinsman redeemer, go through all the specific steps laid out in the scripture for our redemption and the right for him to come and buy the field. But the problem is, we started in the book of John. And we're all dancing around in the New Testament. And it's all about the blood, the blood, the blood. And you don't even understand what the blood does. Yes, you understand it's for your salvation. Amen. But there's so much more. He's got so much more for you. And you've been there sitting in those pews for 30 years. And you're like, I know I'm with him. But he says, I will never hunger and I will never thirst. There's got to be more than this. He didn't die and rise again so I could come here once a week, do this, and then go off to work. I'm supposed to be a part of the plan and be fully engaged in the redemption because I've got one life and it's got to count if I'm truly his, right? So let's go back to the beginning and follow that crimson cord from the Torah and weave it through to the prophets, and then end up in the New Testament, and it'll make all sense. Instead of trying to backwork it and getting lost, or ending up with a totally new God, a totally new religion, and doing your own thing your own way. Which is what's happened. 
And I can make a God of my own liking. Which is idolatry. Which is golden calf worship. And many shall come to me in the end of days and say, well, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name, that one. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity, a without nomia Torah. No, he doesn't want you to be a rabbinic Pharisee, but he says, if you love me, you shall keep my commandments. Grace leads to obedience, and obedience brings blessing. So, Turn with me to now the prophets. So you want to find the base text of land redemption in the Torah. Leviticus chapter 25 verse 10. It's going to cause you to do two things. Go back to the Garden of Eden and go back to your family Israel. Because you're grafted in. Two things. But now let's see the thread go through to the prophets. And now we're going to see Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 6. Redemption. Turn there with me. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 6. Jeremiah, his Hebrew name, Yirmiyahu. Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah said, The word of Yahuwah came to me saying, See, Hamael, that means the grace of El in Hebrew, the son of Shalom, the, that means to be fully recompensed and to restore. And in verse 7, we see the word will answer and fully restore by the grace of El. So that's what verse 7 means, in case you missed it. And and, and it's easy to miss in the King Jimmy, isn't it? But in the Hebrew, verse 7 literally means the word will answer and fully restore by the grace of El. That's just right there in verse 7. Just those two names. Your uncle shall come to you saying, buy my field that is in Anathoth. Now, Anathoth means to answer through prayer. So buy my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. So Hamael, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard according to the word of Yahuwah, and he said to me, buy my field. I ask you that is in Ananoth. That's a city of refuge, by the way, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of Yahweh. And I bought the field of Hanael, my uncle's son, that was in Anaoth, and I weighed for him the silver, even 17 shekels of silver. Now, silver, of course, is the currency of man's redemption. And how long did Joseph spend in Egypt? 17 years. And you will, so we see the connections here. 17 years Joseph was in Egypt. Mitzrayim, Egypt. Jerusalem is in Psalms 17 times. And in Romans 8, there's 17 things that are unable to separate you from what? The love of Yahweh. So this is all connecting to man's redemption. Let's continue on in verse 10. I don't want to overwhelm you with too much, but there's a lot going on here, is there not? And I signed the deed, and I sealed it. 
And I took witnesses and weighed the silver in the scales. So I took the deed of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the Torah custom and that which was open. So now let's just clarify there were two ways in which a land redemption scroll would be sealed. The custom that is spoken of here in Jeremiah chapter 32 is where you would have a sheepskin parchment that would be hole-punched in the middle. The covenant of land redemption would be written down on the lower half. It would then be rolled up to the half section. It would be tied through those two holes, and then it would be punched with seven seals. Then the loose leaf would have an abridged of what is actually sealed. And then it would be stored in a clay earthen vessel. So then you would go in and you'd pick up the clay earthen vessel. You could take the scroll out. You could lift up the loose leaf and know what was in the sealed scroll without breaking the seals because you can't break the seals unless you have the right to land redemption. Jeremiah 32. The other way of the Torah custom of, of um, land redemption that we see in Revelation chapter 5 is that the abridged contract would be on the outer side or the back side and the whole front would have the actual land redemption that would be all rolled up and sealed with seven seals but then on the outer side you'd see the bridged version that's Revelation chapter 5 and only the one that has the right to redeem the land is worthy to Loose the scrolls. This is what's going on here. I mean, John did not come up with this in Revelation 5. Oh, you know, that's a good idea. No, no, this has been going on for thousands of years and it has to be done according to the custom and what goes before in the prophets. And it has to match the base text of the Torah. Otherwise, it's not true. So now we can go forward into the 12th verse of Jeremiah chapter 32. And I gave the deed of the purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriyahu, the son of Masiyah, in the sight of Hamael, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that signed the deed of the purchase, but for all the Jews that sat in the court of the guard. And I commanded Baruch before them, saying, This says Yahweh Zavot, the Elohim of Israel. Take this deed, this deed of the purchase, both which is sealed and this deed which is open, that's the loose leaf, the abridged version, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may remain, how long? Many days. So there is a future implication of what is happening here. That's prophecy. There's a future fulfillment. Now, the Hebrew word for earthen vessel is bikli chares. Bikli chares. It means someone who shapes wood, stone, or a carpenter. Someone who shapes wood stone or a carpenter. So how do you get access 
to the scroll that is inside, you have to break the vessel. The vessel has to be broken. The carpenter has to be broken so that you can get access to the land redemption. Because the vessel in its brokenness exposes the transaction. Who really has the right to redemption? It's only in his brokenness does it expose the transaction. Who really has the right to the land? And that is why the principalities now are waging war in this one last ditched effort effort to do a scorched earth policy because it is apparent who has the right to the land and it's not the new world order it's not the illuminati but it is those that are about to be revealed the sons of yahuwah you and i those that have returned to the house of Jacob. This is amazing stuff. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it is written, But we have this treasure in what? Biklicheres, earthen vessels. That the excellency of the power, the power is a euphemism for the right hand of Yahuwah. Who sits at the right hand of Yahuwah? Of course, the Malkit Zedek, the one who has the right, Revelation 5, to come back and unseal the scrolls. He says, what? But we have a treasure, this treasure, in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be from Yahuwah, not from us. This is talking about what's about to happen in Revelation 5, that the Bikli Kares, the earthen vessel, is going to be broken, crushed, and then resurrected, exposing the transaction of who has the right to the land redemption. Look at verse 15 of Jeremiah chapter 32. For this says Yahweh Sevot, the Elohim of his Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. But now when I made delivered the deed of the purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriyahu, I made prayer to Yahweh saying, Oh, Master Yahweh. Just as what happened in Revelation chapter 5. Oh, Master Yahweh. See, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. And there is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to thousands. And you repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great mighty El, Yahuwah Sevot, is his name. This is amazing. Because now you're going to see this full land redemption play out in the New Testament. We know throughout the New Testament that agriculture is what? It is analogous with us. Wheat, tares. I mean, right? It's all agricultural. It's about people. I've never read anything so much. You're like, what is going on? You read the New Testament, you're like, oh, these guys were farmers. The wheat, the tares, the fields, it's ready for the harvest. It's like amazing. But it's speaking about us. 
The word is displayed in agricultural parables. Can we all admit that? I mean, it's so obvious, so obvious. We read in Leviticus chapter 25, the land is mine. Yahweh gave the land, first of all, to Adam, did he not? He gave the land to Adam, to God. He had a job, to shamar, to guard the land. But he gave up that job. He relinquished his responsibility and he let the serpent, the Satan, come in to what he was supposed to be guarding. He was supposed to be keeping that out and he failed to do his duty. So, finally we see that Satan, Satan, then takes the territory. But in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10, at the Jubilee, you'll find the return to your possession, which is the Garden of Eden. You'll return to your family, which is the house of Jacob. So what? You can redeem Israel back at the Jubilee, the year of possession, the year of release. And then we come to what we see in the prophets we've just written. We've just read, excuse me, in Jeremiah. How about buying the land is about to be given. This land was about to be given to another nation. Sound familiar? Because remember, the parables are all agricultural. There's a vineyard, there's a tower. I'm going to give this to another nation. I mean, they came in, my son, they were going to what? I mean, all of this throughout the New Testament, it just excites me, you can tell. And then all of a sudden, we come to John chapter 3, 16. It's the sheep verse, right? It's where we can build a whole religion of universalism. Oh, come all ye unfaithful. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever, you're all whosoever shall believe in him. How many of us have heard that? And the next thing you know, you've got a universalist church with a rainbow flag, and it's, oh, just also, you know, anybody come as you are. Do you really think that God loves the whole world? Really? No, he does not. He hates the world, in fact. We're to be coming out of the world, come out of her, my people. But again, this is all connected to land redemption. The whole world? Well, what is the world? John chapter 3, verse 16. Well, you have to go to Matthew chapter 13, verse 37, because the scripture is a dictionary for the scripture. The field, brethren, is the world, is it not? The field is the world. For God so loved the field. Let's get it right. He doesn't, he's not into universalism, the whosoever's. No, he has a specific plan. And his plan is for the field. He's going to purchase the field. He couldn't give a rip about the world. That is universalist doctrine and it is lukewarm. No, Matthew chapter 13, verse 37, the field is the world. It means this or that to me. Oh, but that doesn't matter what it means to you. The scripture has defined it, what it means. Then we get to Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, and we find that Messiah does something very interesting. Messiah redeems the field. Why does he redeem the field? Because he doesn't want it to pass out of the family. And who's the family? The family is Jacob. The family is Israel. This is talking about the law of redemption. The next of kin is to redeem it back. 
Adam gave away our inheritance, but Yahusha purchases the field, the world. It's not that everything in the field is redeemed. It's not that everything in the field is redeemed. That's universalism. He only purchased the field for a specific reason. It's that the field is redeemed. The field is. The owner then, once he's redeemed the field, what can he do with the field? Whatever he wants. Once he's redeemed the field, he can do whatever he wants to do with the field. And that's when we get to the sickle harvest of Genesis chapter, excuse me, Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. If I purchased a field, which is the world, it's not because God so loved the world. It's because he wants the field. And then he's going to go to the sickle harvest because that field has got lots of thorns and thistles in it. So then you've got to get the heavenly angels to come and separate the wheat from the chaff. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to gather it up into piles. I'm going to clear that land. because I don't care about the field. I want what's buried in the field. I want the hidden treasure You're a hidden treasure. Who's the hidden treasure? The Bible tells us that Israel is a treasure unto Yahweh that's hidden in the field, hidden in the world. I am going to clear that field with my heavenly angels at the sickle harvest. I'm going to gather all those tares, all those thorns, all those thistles, and I am going to burn them. Then I can see and I can now start to hunt for my treasure that is buried in the field. He doesn't care about the world. He just wants what's buried in the field. But by him purchasing the field, he can do with it whatever he wants. Universalism is lukewarm and it will never reveal the mysteries of the word of Yahweh. So now as we go on and see, we can see that Yahusha, for him to redeem the field, he has to pay the full purchase price. He can't cheat, heaven forbid. He must pay the full purchase price of the field to gain the treasure in it. Psalm 135 verse 4, it is written, For Yahuwah has chosen who? Jacob, Israel for himself, Israel for his special treasure. Yahuwah's people aren't received and purchased without cost. It cost him everything. So now you can start to play this theme out throughout the whole of the scriptures. You've got the Edenic fall where the land fell out of man's possession, went back into Satan's realm. Then we see in, Gen- in, in Revelation chapter 12, you can see the wars in the heavens. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2, John 14, 30, John 16, 11. There's so many Bible texts. We know that who is the ruler of this world? Who's the ruler of the field? Who owns the field? Until Messiah comes and pays the full purchase price, it fell out of Adam's hand that Satan is the prince of this world, which is the field, right? He owns the field until Messiah can purchase it back. He's the prince of the air. First John chapter 4, verse 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
We are overcomers. Luke chapter 2, verse 38. Now you're going to understand these texts because it's going to be linked to the land redemption. Leviticus chapter 25, Jeremiah 32, and of course, Revelation chapter 5. Why were they so excited? The words of the prophet Aniyah said, she spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. They were looking for the land redemption. They were looking for their redemption. Luke chapter 1, verse Verse 67, Zechariah's prophecy, Baruch Atah, Yahweh Elohein of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then in Psalm chapter 25, verse 22, we see the psalmist's words fulfilled. Redeem Israel, Yahweh, redeem them out of their troubles. So now we look for this transaction called the procedure of redemption. Or in the Hebrew, it's called mishpat ha gelulah. And it is about the procedure of redemption. And it's about talking about after the legal rights of purchased, purchase are acknowledged, then what we see now is the playing out all the way up to Yahushua's um, crucifixion. So first of all, the first thing that would happen as this land transaction and redemption would take place, first of all, somebody would come and they would, you would have to see, what is your claim? How do I know that you are the legitimate one that is able to redeem this land back, right? And of course, we have Matthew chapter 1. And what do we find right there? We have a full list of the legal genealogies of the kinsman redeemer there okay can we now establish that he has the right now the buyer then has to purchase the land by what we read it weighing out the silver does he not of course now we're going to have to see the weighing out of the silver first corinthians chapter 6 verse 20 for you were bought at a price Therefore glorify Yahuwah in your body and your Ruach, which are a lowers. Now a bill of sale, of course, would have to be written up. John chapter 18, Matthew chapter 26. A bill of sale? Well, when did that happen? How on earth do you think Judas? How on earth do you think Judas received a full detachment of troops. It doesn't happen without a bill of sale and the purchase of silver, right? The redemption currency for man. So we see this full transaction now and the betrayal, and we see now a bill of sale, and then the deed was sealed. How did he seal that deed? With a kiss this is all played out and then that land redemption has to be properly notarized in the presence of witnesses and all that happened in Pilate's court did it not in the presence of witnesses in Pilate's court and then there has to be a public transference and that was well we'll take Barabbas and you can what nail Yahushua to the tree, crowned in thorns, bleeding three times. 
plays out every single detail for the transference of land redemption and the redemption of people from the Torah to Jeremiah 32 all the way into the New Testament. We have the exchange and the transference. Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. I was sent, but not for, but for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, because they are the lost treasure that is buried within the field. That's why so many people are waking up now. Why? Because the field is about to be cleared and the treasure is becoming more clear to see. And people are starting to wake up that we're to graft into Israel, produce the same fruit and produce the same crop. No longer to be in the nations following after a syncretized system of religion, but returning back to the former things, just like the prophet Isaiah spoke of. This is powerful. Return now, Romans chapter 8, verse 20. This is our land redemption. And finally, we know that who has the rights to do it. John is dismayed in Revelation chapter 5. He looks around. There's nobody that can unloose the scrolls. But we know that Yahusha has paid the full price. The transaction was done publicly. It was sealed with a kiss. The currency of silver was paid. And there was a transaction. They took Barabbas. Yahusha then went and he paid the price. Now he has rights because he defeated Satan. If Satan had known that that was a legal transaction where he was gaining back Eden from Satan, then they would never crucify the Son of Glory. Because once that transaction was fulfilled and he rose up, he not only redeems mankind, he redeems creation. This is the gospel message. This is the gospel message. This is amazing stuff. And this is what Paul is talking about right here in Romans chapter 8, verse 18 and 19 as we open up. But we have to go back to be able to understand what is ahead. We truly do. Now we go to the 20th verse. For to vanity... I only got through two verses. <laughs> for, for to vanity was the creation made subject, not of its will, but because of him who did subject it in hope. And that also the creation itself shall be set free from the servitude of the corruption to liberty of the glory of the children of Yahweh. For we have known that all creation, it doth groan together and it doth tra travail in pain together until now. And not only so, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we also ourselves, in ourselves, do groan. Adoption, expecting the redemption of our body. And this is what it means, doesn't it? To be living in between the times. You've heard me say it so many times. This eschatological tension that we live in the midst of. We are redeemed, but yet we are not fully there. And we just, we're between heaven and earth, aren't we? The old man is dead, but we haven't become into our glorified bodies. We live 
Our life is a life between the two. We live and dwell in an eschatological tension, whereas those who do not know the Son, they live in peace and harmony with the world. You and I cannot, because this is not our home. We are the Spirit, our Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We all feel that tension, no matter how successful you are, No matter how blessed you are in your family life, we all as believers, we have to feel that tension. If we are his, you will never, ever fully be home here because of that eschatological tension. That is a sign that you are his. If you're just happy clappy with everything, oh, I love the world, I love the world. All right. For in hope, verse 24, we are saved. And hope beheld is not hope. For what anyone doth behold, why also doth he hope for it? And if what we do not behold we hope for, through continuance we expect it. Verse 26. And in like manner also, the Spirit doth help our weaknesses. For what we may pray for, as it behoveth us, we have not known. But the Spirit herself doth make intercession for us with groanings unutterable. Verse 27. And he who is searching the hearts hath known what is in the mind of the Spirit, because according to Elohim, she doth intercede for the saints. And we have known that those loving Elohim, all things do work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, of course, Paul's thought right here in verse 28, I'm sure he's thinking of Joseph. I'm sure he's thinking of the prophet Jeremiah of which we just read. When those men were in desperate straits, we knew that all things were working together for good and for Yahweh's purpose. As Jeremiah was down the well and Joseph was imprisoned. Verse 29, because whom he did foreknow, he also did for a point. He confirmed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, many people struggle with verse 29. Now, there's three typical views when we get to verse 29. Shifting gears a little here, if you can't tell. And I want to talk about that because over the many centuries, verse 29 has caused much trouble between various thoughts, whether it be Calvinism and all kinds of denominationals. So we'll look at the three views. Number one, verse 29, is talking about the predestination of individuals to salvation. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about the predestination of individuals to salvation. Number two, this is talking about the predestination of spiritual transformation. Predestination of spiritual transformation. And number three, this is talking about the corporate predestination of Yahuwah's people to sanctification and a future glory is in view. So these are the three typical 
understandings and has caused much contention over the centuries. Personally, my opinion, my view, you guys may differ. That's totally fine. I believe, based upon the weight of the text and the context, that number two is what we're talking about. This is talking about predestination to a spiritual transformation. That's what I seem to see from the text. Predestination to a spiritual transformation. Because whom he did foreknow, he also did foreappoint, conform to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Just my witness from my life is I see how he predestined me and spiritually transformed me and even before I knew him he set me up for the transformation that would be the latter part of my life which I now live and walk daily and I look at the things that I have come across in my life and it has allowed me to be the man I am today but what what Satan would use for evil Yahweh has turned and used for transformation and now is strength so you know I look at it that way verse 30 and whom he did for appoint these also he did call and whom he did call these also he declared righteous and whom he declared righteous these also he did glorify of course we know from jeremiah the prophet again before i formed thee in the belly oh i did foreknow thee And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Oh, I love that. that. Verse 31 of chapter 8 of Romans. What then? What then shall we say to these things? I mean, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? The power of Yahweh's word. All that this is going on in just this third installment, as we've done it in three installments of chapter 8. What then shall we say unto these things? If Elohim is for us, who is against us? He who indeed is his own son, he did not spare, but for all us did deliver him up. How shall he not also with him that all things grant to us? Who shall lay a charge against the choice ones of Elohim? Elohim is he that is declaring the righteous. So the elect of verse 33 is Yahuwah's corporate people, I believe, that are being transformed. We are being restored back into covenant. Not individuals predestined to eternal salvation. And I believe Psalm 105 confirms this interpretation because it's written in verse 6. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen... And then in verse 42 it says, For he redeemed his holy promise and Abraham his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy and his chosen with gladness. So I think when we're talking about this in connection with land redemption, in connection with predestination, it's talking about the corporate people that are being transformed and restored back into covenant, not 
individuals that are predestined to eternal salvation. And I think Psalm 105 in verse 6, you see the context is to the seed of Abraham. You see that it's to Jacob, Israel, his chosen. And then in verse 42, it's about remembering his holy promise, which of course is the covenants of promise, the book of the covenant to Abraham, his servant. And he brings forth this to his chosen, those that are brought forth in the redemption at the end of days. Verse 34, who is he that is condemning? Messiah is he that died, yea, rather also he was raised up. Who is also at the right hand of Yahuwah, who also doth intercede for us. It's because of Messiah's present reign as the Malkitzedic, Psalm 110, that the redeemed priesthood in him can be supplied. We can be supplied with all of our needs because of his position. And those today that say that Messiah can't have a priesthood here on earth, they've designated themselves as a people who are lacking the gifts and the supplies of Yahusha. And that's very sad to me. Verse 35 who shall separate us from the love of Messiah? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. According as it hath been written, for thy sake we are put to death all day long. We were reckoned as sheep to the slaughter. And so when you see the things that are going on in the world, it can seem dismaying. But look at the victory. And we can't see the end from the beginning. But Yahweh can. But he has a land redemption and a people redemption. And as they try now in this last ditch effort to bring forth a scorched earth policy and out of destruction they will rebuild. That's what they think. And put their man on the throne. We have to understand that it is already settled in heaven. But we have to be able to see. We have to be able to see because the world cannot see because they are at home in the world. Whereas we are within the eschatological tension, we are between the two worlds which gives us clarity of vision. Because we are not a people that see by eyes, but we walk by faith. So I'm not disheartened. Yes, I'm disappointed. Very disappointed that those tomahawks went off and it seems that the Trump train got derailed by the globalists. But I'm not going to look at it from a worldly point of view. I'm looking at it from Romans chapter 8, verse 19 and 20. And I'm seeing the end result is Revelation chapter 5. But I am aware, just like Yahweh used Nebuchadnezzar to get his people prepared, I believe that Yahweh, if he wants to clear the land and he wants to get rid of the thorns and the thistles and the briars, that he can use these kings of the earth to do his will and they are oblivious. But what I know, even if the scorched earth begins, that Israel is the buried treasure within the field and no one has the right to touch you except the one who is able to loose the seven seals. 
That's our position. And we stand on it and we walk by faith, not by sight. But we know that we wage war not against flesh and blood, but principalities. And Paul understood it as he closes now in the text. We see this very thing. But in all these we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, brethren, today, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor messengers nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things about to be nor height nor great depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of Elohim that is in Messiah, our Yahusha, crucified, risen, the one who has the right to unleash the scrolls and say, the treasure in the field is mine. I purchased the field, which is the world, not because God so loved the world. He doesn't love the field, but he has to have the legal rights to the world, the field, so that he can do with it what he wants. And if he has to use the Nebuchadnezzars of this world to clear his earth so he can get his treasure out, then I have faith and I will not be dismayed. But I know that they principalities and powers therein, if they had knew the plans of Yahweh, they would never have crucified the Son of Glory. We have to have eyes that see more than the natural to be able to get through the days that are coming upon this land. Amen. Questions, comments, anybody? Powerful, Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Matthew, we do have a question from the uh, internet audience, and it was in reference to the uh, what soil man was taken from. Could you just give a little clarification on that? From the midst of the garden, which is akin to the Kedosh Ha Kedoshim, the Holy of Holies. Abba, we thank you, Abba. We ask that you would preserve your people. We thank you, Abba, for your Shabbat. We thank you, Abba, for your feasts and festivals. Abba, we thank you that we have been redeemed and that you have redeemed creation for all creation groans just as we groan, Abba. We thank you, Abba, and ask that you would see us each and every day through so that, Abba, we would stand and we would give a good account for the life, the days that you have given us upon the land in Yahushua's mighty name. Amen. Amen. Amen.